0: Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Topp of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out.
1: And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of the Paleomum.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the
0: key to improving public health. Welcome back, listeners, to The Whole View, episode 41. If you missed our big announcement last week. 401. 401, my gosh. I am <laughs> clearly missing some time. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about how I was going to tell people that you told me I wasn't allowed to start the show differently, and I did just that. I still messed up our episode number. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you know what? I this is the challenge these days though and this is uh, an excellent intro into our topic for today is i'm one of the things that i'm finding really challenging uh, about the coronavirus quarantine is the lack of things that mark the passage of time and the fact that sort of every day seems the same like it's and it's you wouldn't think that that would be so disorienting but i'm really finding it to be um a huge challenge just in terms of um getting you know getting my to-do list done but also like i don't realize how much the the small variations from day to day are actually uh like quality of life contributors
0: yes there it's been eye opening for me on the things that really are quality of life and like where I prioritize my time when I need to have things, you know, And it, anyway, I do want to say, I was going to say before I said episode 41, um, if you missed our announcement last week on episode 400, not 40, um, we are now the whole few, but we are still the same podcast. And we're going to jump in this week, as Sarah said, um, and talk a little more COVID-19 if you're listening to this later. Um, I think we're in week six of quarantine here in Virginia. Um, I don't know where you are on that timeline, Sarah, but um, yeah, I we're think still- we were a week ahead of you, I think. I think you're a week behind. I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Really, honestly, it's all just one big pot of soup of time and quarantine-ness. And we know a lot of you have followed up with questions, but um, we're happy to dive into that. But I did want to ask if you are enjoying the show, whether it was, you know, five episodes ago, or you actually started listening to us in episode 500, and you're working your way back. If I can, it's weird to think of it like a time warp like that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) If you are, um, if you have not recently done a review, even just to like scroll down in your app, um, on your phone, and just like tap five stars because we're five stars we're clearly we're the juiciest peaches in the orchard um (laughs) you'll hear that joke in the bloopers um then that would be so great that's my point that's that's all i'm asking is it will really help people hopefully find the show um because it's a new show um with a new image the way that the apps and um Things work is it will look at what's happening and decide whether or not it wants to boost us into, like, hey, you might like this show to other people. And so if you're able to just take a couple of seconds to give us a rating or a review, it will help other people find the show and hopefully help them live their best lives. So we really appreciate you taking the time to do that.
1: I actually have um, some listener comments that, you know, as we were pulling together the um, frequently asked questions on COVID-19 that we haven't thoroughly addressed on the podcast yet for this episode, um, I just kept reading all of these, like, really nice things about um, our podcast in general, but also about the podcasts that we've done related to COVID-19 and the resources that those are. And I thought uh, I thought we should start this episode schmoopy. Are you okay with some schmoopy? Shmo-
0: I was just reading reviews on iTunes and feeling schmoopy already so I'm ready. Let's <laughs> dive. Let's dive in. So, uh
1: Mariel commented on social media, "Thanks for all of the amazing actionable content during this health crisis. I've been tuning into the podcast every week."
0: Oh, thanks Mariel.
1: And Amy wrote, I'm a longtime listener, one of those who's gone back and caught up. I know Stacy, but they were so helpful.
0: <laughs> I love that she was <laughs> like, I'm already facepalming, and she's like, yep, I know what you're going to say.
1: <laughs> I mainly attribute the fact that I've maintained control of my rheumatoid arthritis for three years. Without my double dose of DMARDs to the two of you, saved my life. Thank you both for all that you do. It would just be an honor just to be given a shout-out on the new show, The Whole View. Congrats. I can't wait to hear the first
0: episode. Shout-out, Amy. Amy, Shout-out. Okay. One more. And Renee wrote...
1: Thank you for all the energy and passion you put into every episode. I learn something new every time, and I've gotten my husband to listen along with me. That's male listener number nine.
0: (laughs) I was really hoping we were up to double digits. Thank you, Renee (laughs) and husband. Um, We're almost there. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to hear more from our listeners, and this is one of the things that we talked a lot about in episode 400 is how much we enjoy connecting with you and we build the show around what is hot and interesting and needed in the world for all of us to, like Mariel said, um, have actionable content that, you know, can give us hope and all of that kind of stuff. And so, Sarah, you've pulled together, your team has pulled together a bunch of questions that we've gotten related to this that weren't on our previous shows covering the topic. And we're going to kind of like group them together in some responses. Am I understanding that correctly?
1: That is correct. And actually, I need to do a special shout-out because um, in episode 400, we talked about our process for creating the podcast. And when we got into post-production, we like named team members and what they were doing, but we didn't actually talk about uh, a very important team member on my team who does almost all of the pre-production work, which is Carissa Talbot, who... Um, is my chief operations officer, but she's actually the person who goes through all of the questions that come in through social media and our uh, podcast inbox and organizes them and puts them together in topic groups and um, helps us put together that calendar and the, like, overarching themes of like what we're going to talk about every single week. She puts a ton of effort into the pre-production of the show. So I felt really bad when I realized that um, we'd sort of talked about pre-production and post-production separately last episode, and I hadn't done that specific call-out to just how critical Carissa is for putting this show together every single week. So uh, since Krissa put a ton of work into compiling uh, these topics for this um, COVID-19 FAQ show, I thought uh, shout-out was an order.
0: Hi, Krista! Shout-out. <laughs> I feel like that's what this show's going to – I'm like, shout-out. I'm like literally raising the roof every time I say it, by the <laughs> way, would, in case you needed a visual. Yeah.
1: No, I was really picturing some kind of hand motion, and I just wasn't sure if it was
0: jazz hands or raise the roof, so I'm really glad to know – that it was raised the roof. I think that's very helpful. Thank you. Earlier today, it was jazz hands on a different topic. And right now it's like clenched fingertips as I emphasize hand talking. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on before I. All
1: right. So um, I, I've just read so many different variations of this question, which is what is our way out? So we are on globally. I mean, the, the scale of, uh, shutdowns globally is unprecedented. This is just um, something, it's not It's not just something that is uh, unique in our lifetimes. It's, it's unique in human history to have, um, you know, basically like 180 different regions and countries have some version of a stay-at-home or shelter-in-place order. And uh, the good news is, is that in uh, the vast majority of those places, we're starting to see the effects of this, you know, real, you know, sacrifice that we've all been making of not leaving our homes except for very limited trips out for, you know, essentials like groceries and medications, and um, and the the huge impact that these um, shelter in place orders have had on the global economy, um, you know, the the unemployment numbers being unprecedentedly high. Um, all of this sacrifice has been to be what's sort of called you've sort of colloquially heard it as flattening the curve. And what that means is is basically we're by removing ourselves from the circulation, we are taking ourselves out of the pool of possible people that this virus could spread to so that we can limit the spread enough that we at any given time, have few enough cases that we are below the maximum capacity of the healthcare system to care for the people who need it. And one of the big challenges with this virus is not just that it has, you know, approximately 10, if not 20, times the mortality rate of the seasonal flu, but it also has an incredibly high hospitalization rate. So, depending on the age group, and I'll talk about this more in a bit, somewhere between like twenty and seventy percent, depending on the age group, of people who are testing positive or requiring uh, advanced respiratory care in. A hospital setting that might involve supplemental oxygen, and that can go all the way to you know being on a ventilator, and so because of that, um, you know it's it's an incredible strain on the healthcare systems, and because this is so highly infectious, probably one of the most infectious viruses in human history. Um, it's requiring healthcare workers in order to protect themselves to utilize a huge amount of what's called PPE, personal protective equipment, Uh, things like N95 masks, um, face shields, uh, hair uh, covers, um, gowns. And um, that's putting a huge strain on the entire supply chain for that equipment, because it's being used up in order to protect our healthcare workers at a rate that, Basically, has never been experienced before, right? So this is just something that um, that uh, is a, a new experience across the board. And so because this is such a challenging virus and we don't have a preventative or a treatment yet, um, our only option so far has been these mass, uh, mass physical isolation right mass quarantines so the question is like how do we how do we get back out how do we um get back to life as normal
0: um so life is normal like going back can i to- also add one more element of that which is that we did not have the pr- proper testing equipment either so that made it difficult for being able to tell or adequately diagnose um like, I know a lot of people were being diagnosed virtually and being told to stay home and that kind of stuff.
1: Sure. I, and I have, um, I have three or well, two friends and a family member who almost certainly had it and were unable to get testing. So uh, testing actually continues to be a huge challenge. And um, we'll definitely talk about that more um, because testing is um, still not as accurate as it needs to be. And also, or as fast a turnaround um, as it needs to be, and it's still not scaled up to the point where, um, like in most places, you still can't get a test unless you have severe symptoms. So um, in most places, globally, um, mild symptoms are asymptomatic. Um, we, we still can't get tested. There's exceptions, right? Like Iceland's doing uh, an absolutely amazing job. Testing and actually doing a community screening, where they're sort of randomly testing people in the population. Um, so um, that has definitely got us to to where we are now. The um, problems with the first test that the CDC developed basically slowed down our ability to get our our hands around the scope of the challenge, um, mm-hmm. and, and that's one of the reasons why we. By the time we had community spread across the country, we didn't have any other option other than get everybody to stay at home. If you have to go out, social distance, wear a mask. Um, And we're going to talk about all of these things in this episode. So the way to get beyond this, we need one of three things to happen so the the first thing, and and in the long run, the thing that will actually be the most effective is herd immunity. And I think it helps to define what that is. So herd immunity means that enough of the population is immune that the effective reproductive number of the virus drops below one, so it becomes self-limiting. So basically what that means is um. The reproductive number is a measurement of, on average, how many people one infected person will infect. Um, and when that reproductive number, also called R naught, is above one, you have something that can grow. And the higher it is, the the faster it can spread throughout a community. If that R naught is below one, you have something that will eventually fizzle out. And. Uh, there's a few things that go into that, right? So how infectious it is um, and, and are not when you take into account things like population density will increase, for example. Um, but the other one is, right, natural immunity. So uh, there's right now one way to become immune to uh, the novel coronavirus, and that is to get it and survive it, Um but there's also a number of vaccines in development, and that can also contribute to herd immunity. And so what we need is um, 70% is sort of considered the magic number um, with some social distancing still in place. 50% is potentially enough to to be able to, to start um, getting back to life as normal. But we basically need this, at least 70% of the population to be immune. However, they get immune by the time we're at that phase. So in the absence of herd immunity, um, the other big thing that would get us to to back to life as normal would be an effective antiviral treatment. So some medication that we can give um, infected people that would be life-saving, but also reduce the hospitalization rate. So we need something that we can give people that will free up those hospital beds and um, mean that people aren't dying from this disease. And if we had that, we could let it spread throughout the community. And just as people got infected, we can give them this treatment. Um, there's also the possibility of medications that would potentially prevent, um, the virus from infecting a person that is much less likely. We don't have a lot of, um, we don't have a lot of drugs that serve that purpose that are safe and effective, that, we can draw on for this um, but basically some kind of antiviral is another way out um, and in the absence of uh, either a method of um, achieving herd immunity or an effective antiviral treatment, the other option is to basically do these shutdowns and quarantines long enough and ramp up testing capabilities um, and efficacy high enough that we can go back to what would have been ideal in the beginning of, of Testing uh, quickly and getting results back from every suspected case and then contact tracing in order to uh, do these like select quarantines of people who may have come in contact with the virus until we know for sure whether or not they have it. So take only those people who we know have come in contact with the virus out of the circulation. Um, And so and there have been, you know, there have been countries who who like South Korea that ramp up testing early enough that they've been able to control the spread of the novel coronavirus just with this extensive testing and individual quarantines for um, people who, through contact tracing, they know were potentially exposed. So there is also this other option of um, if we can maintain these quarantines long enough that we have a real handle on the number of cases, and we have the testing capabilities and the ability to contact trace um, to be able to, from there, then go back to that type of system. So, those are our ways out. Um, uh, Each one, there's um, challenges to getting there, and I'm going to talk about each of those individually. Um, And none of these are fast. Um, So, uh, none of these are a thing that we're going to have in the next couple of weeks, for example, um, which I think is really important because, um, because there are um, a lot of um, – from a policymaker's perspective, they're considering more than just the public health equation. Um, my preference, because I'm not a politician, is to answer the public health aspect of this. So purely from a public health perspective, what is our way – through this pandemic to life as normal, where you don't have to worry about potentially catching a you know lethal infectious disease when you go to the grocery store. Like, wh- how do we get beyond that um, that level of strain and stress on all of our lives? So the f- fastest um, the fastest way out is probably the discovery of an effective antiviral. Um, There are a number of candidate drugs that are being tested. Many have been shown to kill the novel coronavirus in test tubes. But it's really important to know that um, when something works as an antiviral in a test tube, that doesn't mean that when you take that drug, it's automatically going to get to the right spot in our bodies to be effective. So it might not be in the right spot at the same spot as the virus particles themselves. And it also doesn't mean that the doses required to be an effective antiviral in our bodies are safe. And actually, there aren't very many good examples of truly effective antivirals in our current sort of pharmaceutical arsenal. So for example, Tamiflu is one of the sort of like best known antivirals. And it's been shown that if it's taken between the first 36 to 48 hours of, uh, the first onset of, of influenza symptoms, that it can decrease the duration of the illness by 30 to 40%. Um, but the way it's commonly taken, it's very, it's very unusual to hit that 36 to 48 hours. The way it's commonly taken, it shortens duration of the flu by about a day. And it's actually never been shown to have any kind of positive impact on the the severe complications of the flu, including hospitalizations and mortality. Um, And so we have more drugs like this that are um, uh, not super compellingly effective and probably overutilized given the actual data. But there are some examples of really good antiviral treatment, and probably the best example we have is the antiviral cocktail that's given to HIV-positive patients. Um, So in fact, because it's uh, so far proven to be next to impossible to develop a vaccine to HIV, um, this is why uh, HIV has become a survivable infection, is because of the antiviral cocktail. And uh, what it is, is there's uh, 28 different drugs that have been approved for treatment of HIV. They um, are in six different classes of drug that each act at a different part of the virus life cycle. Um, So that includes uh, like entry into the cell, uh, the reverse transcription where it's replicating uh, its RNA, that includes viral protein processing and integration, so basically how the, the virus itself is replicating itself and infecting subsequent cells. And so a, an HIV cocktail typically includes six different drugs, including drugs in that target every single part of the HIV life cycle. And so we do have these examples of... Um, antivirals that can be very effective. Um, but what we need right now for COVID-19 is we need these randomized, controlled, double-blind clinical trials of the antivirals that we already have, that you know we already have safety profiles um, established, at least in certain situations. We need to look for drug c- combinations and we need to establish risk profiles. We need to know Uh, What kind of medical supervision needs to be taken, what type of adverse reactions to look for, what type of doses will be effective, and what combinations of antivirals is going to work on COVID-19. And safety is a really huge concern with antivirals in general many of them have quite high adverse reaction rates compared to other pharmaceuticals that people will be more familiar with. And it's because of all of these challenges, this is why we don't have an antiviral medication to take for the common cold. Like if you think about the number of viruses, right, cold and flu season, all fall through spring, those are uh, the vast majority of those infections are viral infections. And for the vast majority of those situations, we do not have curative medications. We don't have the equivalent of penicillin. Uh, if you had a bacterial infection, if you had strep throat, for example, we don't have the equivalent of that for a virus. And when we're talking about the common cold, where the mortality rate is close to zero, it's it's not something that is um, needed for public health. But when you're talking about COVID-19, it is. And I think it's really, you know, in this conversation of Antivirals, I really want to emphasize the need for data to make decisions, and that there are a number of drug candidates that have been uh, identified in small, unblinded, uncontrolled trials that may not pan out once the um, better controlled, randomized, double blind trials are actually performed. Um, Hydroxychloroquine has been making the news as a potential candidate drug um, in the initial sort of promising trials that was shown to kill the novel coronavirus in the test tube. And it was shown in an unblinded, uncontrolled trial in 20 patients that excluded severe illness from the study. It seemed to shorten the duration of illness. Overall, that's the type of result that would indicate this is something worthy of further study. That's not the type of study that would make you go, aha, here's the cure. And um, actually, the the safety profile of hydroxychloroquine is is not awesome. It um, can cause uh, potentially fatal arrhythmias. And um, there was a Brazilian um, uh, clinical trial that was just halted early Um, now we're talking about less than two weeks ago, that was actually parallel, double-blinded, randomized. It was a phase 2b clinical trial. And it used two different doses of uh, hydroxychloroquine in conjunction with uh, either another antiviral or uh, an antibiotic, which is what has been viewed from the very preliminary trials as being um, the best sort of combination. And they had a 13.5% mortality rate in their hydroxychloroquine groups um, from heart attacks um, and a higher fr- fatality rate uh, in their high dose hydroxychloroquine group than the mortality rate is from COVID 19. Um, and they also showed that when they actually looked at um, respiratory secretion samples they um, only had one out of 14 patients um, test negative. So they also showed that it wasn't particularly effective in this actual, you know, medium-sized, still not a huge study, but medium-sized study where um, you actually removed all of the potential for bias. And the authors of the study, they actually, again, they, sh- they shut it down due to safety concerns. So they shut it down early, um, which is done in clinical trials where you feel like your intervention is doing more harm than good. And the authors in um, their paper um, interpreted those findings as hydroxychloroquine Uh, should not be recommended for COVID-19 treatment because of its potential safety hazards. So I want to uh, explain that there's both incredible promise with antivirals as a treatment for COVID-19, but also that um, it's really important to, to take preliminary studies with a very, very large grain of salt, especially when they're uncontrolled and unblinded, um, especially when they are done on a, on a very small number of patients in a very narrow uh, sort of patient demographic, and that's because we really need these bigger studies to be able to prove efficacy and safety. And because we need these bigger studies to prove efficacy and safety, we just we just need time to identify um, the best course of of treatment for COVID nineteen. And there are literally like dozens of different studies, in different antivirals, in different, you know, many of them are multi-center, so they're happening in different places. There are some really good candidate drugs, but we really need to wait for the research before we jump in because of the safety profile of antivirals not being super fantastic and the capacity for harm um, if it's not the right drug. So I think that's really, really important to understand with antivirals.
0: That's, um, fascinating to me. You said it was from Brazil. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's always been interesting to me how different countries do different, um, medical studies at different rates and stuff like that. And I hope that research is being used across the board. Um, like I know that, you know, countries are sharing with each other what they think is or isn't working. And um, I hope that that's considered (laughs) worldwide.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, within the scientific community, um, what scientists are looking for when they're looking at the quality of study are things like study design, the quality of the types of measurements that are being made, right? So you're looking for things that are quantitative, that have high precision rates. Um, You're looking for uh, low opportunity for the introduction of bias into interpretation of results. And that doesn't require, right, like uh, a high quality scientific study doesn't require a specific location, right? It just requires that it's um, carefully, uh, a carefully designed study um, that is administered properly and interpreted um, correctly, right? So, um, one of the things that we're seeing with this particular infection is that um, nobody is immune. There's no country now, a basic other than Antarctica, uh, <laughs> that doesn't have cases, and um, and because of that you know the the places that are fast tracking studies are the places that, um, that can get funding and approval for studies a little bit faster and um other than that you know what we're looking for is is simply the quality of the study um and so this this study is um i think certainly of the ones that i looked at cuz there have been a number i think there's something like 78 different studies ongoing with hydroxychloroquine right now because of the um, really because of the hype that it got from the initial studies. That's really what has forced all of these other studies t- to go um, when probably many of those the resources towards hydroxychloroquine studies should have been more diversely uh, distributed among other antivirals. Um, but because of all of that, um, we really need this data. And uh, it's good that good quality studies can happen anywhere.
0: And, of course, Sarah was right on with her recommendation against hydrochloroquine because four hours after they recorded, the National Institutes of Health released an official recommendation against using hydrochloroquine as a treatment of COVID-19. Truth. There was a mic drop there, so I wasn't sure if I was supposed to, like... Come in and emphasize it or not.
1: <laughs> uh, I know, I, I appreciate I appreciate the mic drop moment there. Um so uh less less tricksy, no, more trixie, more tricksy than antivirals after having just explained all the tricksiness, um, are is vaccine development for the novel coronavirus. Um so I think one of the things that's really important to understand is that vaccine development, especially for a new virus that's there's not a vaccine for a similar virus to build on, which is what we're talking about here with the novel coronavirus, um, th- takes years. So the fastest vaccine that's ever been developed was one for mumps that was developed in four years. And the Ebola vaccine was a close second at five years. Um, and uh, And so we are trying to develop a vaccine for the novel coronavirus in a year. Um, that's probably unrealistically optimistic, um, given the challenges with developing vaccines against other members of the coronavirus family. So COVID-19 is the seventh identified coronavirus that infects humans. There's four uh, members of this coronavirus virus family that cause the common cold. There's uh, the SARS virus that caused the 2002 SARS um epidemic and the mers virus that caused the 2012 i think um uh mers epidemic um both sars and mers had higher mortality rates than um the, the novel coronavirus um but much lower con- contagiousness uh, i think i just made up that word but they they weren't as contagious so they ended up being um They ended up being well-controlled with public health measures to control infection rates. And so after the 2002 SARS epidemic, there was a lot of interest in developing a vaccine. And one of the things that happened was all of the early candidates when they were tested in rodents caused vaccine-enhanced immunity. And this is a problem in vaccine development that I don't think very many people are aware of, but it is basically where... You um, vaccinate somebody with this vaccine, the body creates its immune response, um, right, as desired. But that immune response makes the person more susceptible to dying from, um, from the vaccine than not. Um, so these vaccine-enhanced infections are... Uh, really problematic. It is a, like, basically it is a, um, like backwards reaction. So it's basically like the vaccine instead of protecting you makes you more susceptible to the infection and makes you more susceptible to severe infection. So, um, this is where understanding that not all antibody responses are protective is really important. So in the um, case of SARS in 2002, um, there weren't good candidate vaccines ready for human trials in t- for about a decade. And by the time there was, there were no no places of you know outbreaks of SARS to test it. Um, so one of the things that happened was by so by the time we we're ready to test in humans, there was no like population that was exposed that you could test and then see how protected those people would be because of the combination of um the SARS coronavirus not being as contagious as the COVID-19 coronavirus and the public health measures that were put in place um sort of very aggressively at that time. And um, the other sort of alternatives for ways that you could test these vaccines on humans, um, basically funding ran out. So because there wasn't an active infection, there was no interest either by government funding agencies or pharmaceutical companies to invest vaccines are very, very expensive to develop. And because of the um, amount that has to be Tested that's not successful that increases the expense. So what's happening now with um, with COVID nineteen is that research is sort of picking up. Uh, vaccine research is picking up where SARS vaccine research left off. Um, but we need to understand the antibody response to COVID nineteen. So there have Um, interestingly been some studies that show that the body's producing several different types of antibodies when it's infected with COVID-19 and they're not all neutralizing antibodies, um, which is what you need from um, a vaccine. And in fact, the chances of a vaccine causing vaccine enhanced infection are uh, still there with COVID nineteen. So there was uh, a study out of China that showed that the more antibodies uh, a person produced, so this, these were all measured in the first um, two weeks of infection, that actually predicted worse clinical classification of the disease course, and it's it's indicative of um, how complex it's going to be to develop a, an effective vaccine against the novel coronavirus. So, um, what it will take is, uh, you know, there are many different vaccines that are now in phase one clinical trial. Um, so it will take, um, it takes actually basically doing the human trials at the same time as the animal trials, um, in order to, expedite to this you know, 12-month to 18-month time frame. And it will also take a incredibly huge investment in mass-producing vaccines. So once a vaccine is proven to be effective, it's six months to a year to mass-produce that vaccine to the level that we would need to um, achieve herd immunity. And so in order to get down to that 12-month to 18-month time frame, the vaccine candidates would also have to be mass produced before they're proven, and I've seen estimates that that would cost upwards of 500 billion dollars of investment in vaccine production in order to, um, in order to reduce that six month to one year timeframe. So, um, you know, we we hope that the the SARS vaccine research was progressed far enough that. Picking up from that for this related virus will help um, expedite the the vaccine development, and we hope that one of the ones that's uh, in clinical trial and in development right now will be very effective. And we hope that there's that huge investment um, in mass production, so that once a virus, uh, once a vaccine is is proven to be effective against this virus, it can be um, distributed almost
0: immediately. Billion with a B. Yeah. That was actually really fascinating. I appreciate you sharing that. I had no idea that the shortest vaccine you said was four years followed by five years after that. Yep. And and here we are expecting it <laughs> to be turned around. And I think everyone wants it in 30 days. I think you said a year. Yes.
1: Yeah, no, but... Um, I- a that's year is what would happen with with this five hundred billion dollar investment, and if everything, if we just luck out, right? If everything goes right, if everything goes right, including including the financial investment, um, and that's uh, it's a Trixie, it's a Trixie vaccine. Just you know, just like antivirals are Trixie, the the chances of everything going right um, are not one hundred percent. How about that?
0: I can I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. So, um you said we were going to talk about testing? Are you ready yeah. for that?
1: Um yes. So, um there's this whole other side of it, which is um to develop natural immunity through people getting infected. Um, and it, it's worth it's worth mentioning that there are still some questions as to how immune people are after getting the disease and how long it's going to last. So is this one of those things that you're going to get once in your life and you're going to be immune for the whole rest of your life, um, like chickenpox? Um, or is this something that you're going to you know, only be immune for Um, a couple of years, right? Like meningitis. And um, potentially, you know, this could be something where it's like the seasonal flu vaccine, where you would get, you know, vaccinated every year, basically getting, you know, with the seasonal flu vaccine, you're getting a vaccine to a a virus that's mutating quickly. That's why that's done on a seasonal basis. Um, Everything that we've seen so far, on the novel coronavirus shows that it's not mutating particularly quickly, so instead it would be more like a tetanus booster or a meningococcal vaccine booster, where it's more about um, re-informing the immune system to keep making these B cells that will make the right neutralizing antibodies. So we still don't know uh, from the research whether or not getting the disease is a hundred percent guarantee that you're immune. There was a study out of. China, where they analyzed um, the antibody production from 175 people, and showed that there were 10 of them, which is about 5%, or a l- little under, um, or a little over 5%, had no detectable neutralizing antibodies, even though they had high levels of binding antibodies. Those neutralizing antibodies are the ones we need to prevent reinfection. So, it's there's still this still this piece of science that we need to figure out, that needs to be researched, that we need to understand um, how what kind of antibodies need to be produced by our bodies to be immune and how much. And then once we know that, we need to know how long those are going to last. And so one of the things that's really interesting is you know, one of our ways through this is ramping up testing. And that needs to be both testing for active infection, but also testing for immunity, which is the antibody testing that has sort of been hitting the media. And there's actually been a ton of different antibody tests rolled out um, really, really quickly. Um, a lot of them have not been like FDA approved, for example. And um, it's it's interesting to me because there's these tests available without the basic science to help interpret the data. So um, the tests are testing for different, right, IgM, IgG, and IgA antibodies, but we don't know which ones are going to be the right ones, and we don't know what the minimum antibody titer is in our blood, basically the minimum amount of those antibodies in our blood that will actually protect us from reinfection. And what's uh, another big challenge with these antibody tests. So there's there's two different types of uh, tests, right? So there's a diagnostic test, which has high specificity, um, but maybe not high sensitivity. And then there's a screening test, which has high sensitivity, but maybe not as high specificity. We actually need both high specificity and high sensitivity for these antibody tests. So we need to know it's for sure the novel coronavirus that causes COVID-19 and for sure you have enough antibodies to make you immune. And what what will happen is if we have poor sensitivity, that means we'll get false negatives. So um, you'll have people who really are immune who told are told they aren't. And if you have poor specificity, that means false positives, which is actually probably more dangerous because you'll have people being told that they are immune who actually aren't. And there's been some analysis on the commercial antibody tests that have been released so far. There was um, one analysis that was done on nine different commercially available tests available in Denmark and showed that they... Uh, three of them had, uh, sensitivities in the range of 67 to 93% and specificities in the range of 93 to hundred percent. Um, and then five out of the remaining, uh, six had sensitivities ranging from 80 to 93%. Um, and, uh, specificity ranging from 80 to hundred percent, even though those t- tests, um, were developed, uh, and, um, they were, uh, checked like to see how well they work on only 30 people so here's the issue with uh say a 93 percent sensitivity and specificity rate um that number of false negatives and false positives right seven false negatives per 100 people seven false positives for 100 people means that you have people who could be in circulation uh self-isolating who don't necessarily need to And more problematically, you have people out in circulation who are still able to get the coronavirus. And that puts seven out of 100 people who um, should be home, self-isolating, protecting themselves out where they can get this virus. Um, And with with such a high hospitalization rate, you're now predicting that one or two of those people will require hospitalization. Um, That's that's how problematic a 93% specificity actually means. Um, what we actually need is we need these tests to be 99% or better in terms of both sensitivity and specificity. And so uh, we need the antibody tests to be better. And then the other thing we need is we need the diagnostic test, right, the swab test to where you're doing the RT-PCR, looking for the viral RNA we need that to be a rapid test. So what's happening right now is um, the the test is taking five to twelve days for people to get results back, um, and so it's more like, oh yeah, that thing that you had two weeks ago when you were really sick, yeah, that was COVID nineteen. Like you have to make all of your decisions assuming a positive, and then you find out after the fact. Um, what we really need is a diagnostic test that's operates very much like the rapid strep test in a doctor's office, where you get a um, high sensitivity test within eight minutes. And then if, you, if you've if you ever had one of these tests, you know that the swab is then sent for culture for 48 hours. And that's where you get your high specificity test. So you can make a decision right away based on treatment. In the case of COVID-19, it would be based on right isolation. And, um, and then you have still this like second piece to, to confirm within a day or two so that you still have pretty quick information, but that, that second piece of the test is the definitive, yes, now now we've made sure that we don't have a false positive or or a false negative. So we need something like that for COVID-19. There are some tests that are, um, in development that are rapid tests. Um, and, in this, this combination of being able to test people, even with mild symptoms or no symptoms, and then being able to um, tell people if they really are immune. And again, lots of things need to happen with um, our understanding of immunity against this virus, as well as improvement in the antibody tests themselves. Once we have the, the testing capabilities and we have a good enough handle on the cases with this shutdown, um, then we could potentially start returning to more normal life without waiting for a vaccine or an antiviral. And this really requires a huge amount of tests. I've seen estimates on the order of 10 million tests per day being ideal for being able to um, really keep a handle on the novel coronavirus just with testing and contact tracing. Um, and that would mean, you know, in some in some sort of like high-risk economic sectors, right, uh, people like nurses or teachers that are having contact with a lot of people throughout the day, you might be looking at testing those people maybe even as much as twice weekly. And so you would be doing this combination of testing people with symptoms, um, even mild symptoms, to identify those cases as early as possible. But you would also do this like random screening of the population to make sure that you're catching asymptomatic community spread. Um, And one of the other questions around this option is the privacy issues associated with contact tracing. So what has happened so far as contact tracing is very laborious. A person, you know, it's like one-on-one, they recount everywhere that they can remember they've been in the last two weeks. And then you go, okay, well, you went to the grocery store at such and such a time. So we contact the grocery store and we find out who was working. And then we figure out if we can figure out who the cashier was. And then we have to tell that cashier to go into quarantine. Like it's a very resource-intensive process. So there are um, countries that are sort of experimenting with tracking with um, smartphone apps. So basically, your phone is tracking where you are at all times. Um, and then if you test positive, your phone can basically say, okay, we were within six feet of all of these other phones in the last two weeks. And so it's a alert saying that you might have,
0: you know, would show up on your phone saying you might have been exposed. I know that it's going to freak some people out that phones know that much, but I love that. I know, I know. <laughs> I know some people don't like knowing cuz it exists whether you like it or not. So I, you know, I would say my apologies, but sorry, I'm not sorry. <laughs> that is so cool. I love that. So, um we don't have this capability. I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. Um, but it exi- I mean, I can see how that technology can exist. Yes. So it, um, you know,
1: it misses out people who don't have smartphones. So it misses out that, you know, it basically excludes, um, the poorest members of society who don't necessarily
0: have. Um, or on the them. Like smartphone. if they're, if they're right. in a skiff or if they're in mm-hmm. surgery or, you know, something like that. Um, those were two very different examples of when you might not have your phone on you. <laughs> We're <laughs> <Or, or> swimming <laughs> for a third, very different right, okay, example. There here we go. Uh, very, yes.
1: Um, so, yeah, so it misses that. Um, and there's definitely privacy um, concerns with uh, collecting that type of data. So that is something that um, that's above my pay grade to figure out. But that is something that will also probably have to be put in place in order for this intermediate option of Life back to normal. We need we need to be able to um, uh, take the human resources out of contact tracing, and we need to really crazily ramp up testing. Basically, need to be testing as many people per day as we have tested total in America so far. Um, that's that's the scale, right? Like as many people have been tested in the last two and a half months, we need to be doing per day. Um, and then we can do these targeted quarantines where we know who's been exposed or who has it, and then that person stays. And then we also need to be able to ramp up. We need to protect our healthcare workers. So we need to have um, appropriate uh, PPE for them to wear. Um, they need to be able to do things like change their N95 masks every time they, you know, with every single patient, right? Like um, they need more than one mask a day. Um And so we need to be able to protect our healthcare workers. And the whole idea is that, you know, with a long enough shutdown now and ramping up our capacity for testing and contact tracing, um, that we could do these targeted quarantines and uh, keep the hospitalization rate below the maximum capacity of the healthcare system. And I think it's, it's really important here to emphasize that while the mortality rate uh, from COVID 19 increases pretty dramatically with age, right? So it's like 10 times higher in somebody over 70 than it is in a 40 year old. Um, the mortality rate is increasing, but the hospitalization rate is still really high in young people. It's as much as like 15 to 20% in 20 to 44 year olds. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it does still increase with age. It goes up to like 35 ish percent in over, I think, 70 or 80 but it's not the huge, like 10 times higher, right? At, at most, it's maybe 50% higher. And so um, I think it's really important to understand that the rate of severe illness requiring hospitalization is not that different between young, healthy people and either people uh, with pre-existing conditions or who are older. And that is one of the real challenges with this is because of that high hospitalization rate. That's why the strain on the healthcare system is such a big part of the equation. So we really have to figure out how to carefully return to life as normal bit by bit so that we don't completely overwhelm hospitals.
0: That has been the most heartbreaking thing for me. Um, Just to get personal for a second. I mean, to hear the news at this point is announcing the loss of life of so many of those health professionals who are risking everything to help others. And I know it's painful. Like, I have had my own share of meltdowns. And before this podcast started, (laughs) I was, you know, telling my kids to get out and you know their school cannot figure out how to do e-learning and we're on week six like I I get it and from an economic standpoint like it's across the board no nobody is loving everything that's happening right now but I when I get frustrated it helps me to remember why I'm doing this to think about those healthcare professionals and and those other people in the front lines I mean Matt is out there every single day. And when he comes home, he goes through this whole, like, different level of the house to cleanse himself before he comes up. And, you know, we're doing our best to maintain safety. And I just, I'm just putting it out there that as frustrating as it is and as devastating as it has been um, across the board, loss of life, economic, like all, everything in between, we are coming together as a community to help those people who are still fighting that fight and who are risking their lives. And if, you know, we, if we don't do those things, it might not be us that's impacted, but it might be a health professional who, you know, doesn't have the proper equipment and then ends up getting sick and then, you know, doesn't survive. And that's just, for me, like, that's what makes me, be okay with everything that we're doing right now. Like I just, I just focus on that and I'm like, okay, I have so much to be grateful for. And if the worst thing is that I'm spending extra time at home with my kids, like that is not the worst thing in the world. Like we can, we can move forward. And I know that other people have it much harder and I I don't mean to be dismissive of that, but I, I do think that we can all find something to give us that motivation of gratitude or understanding of compassion for those that are fighting on the front lines and all that kind of stuff.
1: I, this is a totally an aside before we get into the next um, question. And I, um, it's one of the things that I've been really grappling with, and I've, I've seen some good interviews with mental health experts that have talked about this, um, is that conflicting feeling of feeling frustrated and worried and concerned and, um, you know, having, having a hard time with, um, whatever piece of it, right. Um, you know, concern over personal safety, the economics, the strain on, uh, families, right. And all of the above. Um, and the, the contradiction between, you know, really having, um, having struggles, and at the same time recognizing how lucky, you know, like I am as an individual to, right, have a, a husband who can work from home, so his right his income is is at least at this point safe. He might get furloughed in the future, but like realizing, you know, in, in a situation where there's, you know, so many people being laid off, how, how fortunate we are, and then still having these um struggles and i I think it's really important to give people permission to um, to know that your struggles, even if you have it better than your neighbor, your struggles are still valid, right? Your challenges in this situation are still valid and i I understand that that weird conflict of feeling like I shouldn't whine about something because I'm, I'm, I have it so much better than tens of millions of people who've lost their jobs. Um, and at the same time, um, I think it's really important to, to not dismiss the challenges that each one of us are having. Um, even if we can still maintain awareness about the things that, deserve gratitude. Um, so I think it's, it's from a mental health perspective, I think it's really important to be able to appreciate that we have these challenges and then apply a solution oriented mindset to them. Um, and I think it's important to not dismiss our own individual challenges because of this amorphous grand scheme of things. They're not that bad.
0: No, absolutely. And I, I also want to acknowledge that they're, Are other issues beyond just what we've mentioned um, when it comes to mental health or um, people who are now at home in a worse situation, um, not able to go to school, food shortages, like there is no lack of um, list that I could provide of all of the things that are going on. And I, I have to say that for me personally, another thing that, you know, I'm, thankful that we started before this whole process was to be foster parents. Um, I haven't talked about that in a long time, but we're actually kind of wrapping, we're still able to go through the process and wrap it up at this point. The only thing we need are fingerprints. Um, and that's kind of a problem. But um, I I say this because I'm, I'm very acutely aware of the number of people who are in a home environment that is not ideal and, um, you know, whether it's a trade-off for, you know, one Situation for another. Unfortunately, it's just the situation that we find ourselves in. And so, if you're feeling frustrated and overwhelmed, something that has given me hope and something to look to is, you know, donating, whether it's time or, you know, my whole family, we went through our pantry and we found foods that if we hadn't eaten since we got them, you know, more than three months ago, we put it in a box and we donated it to a food bank or, you know, different kinds of things that you might be able to do that give you a sense of purpose is often very, um, uh, takes the pressure off of your chest a little bit, if that makes sense. It does.
1: So the next question, um, sort of like group of questions we've had is, um, sort of related, right? So we've already talked about the unanswered questions about immunity. If you have been infected with COVID-19, um, 've also I've also seen a lot of questions come through our inbox and on social media about reinfection and the reason why this is a question is that there have been some reports out of South Korea and China where they have people who uh, tested as negative after having right after being hospitalized or um, being put in a, a quarantine center for the disease who, Tested as negative and we're sent home, and then we're re-hospitalized a couple of days later, testing positive. And it's probably a um, testing failure. So we know that uh, in the course of COVID-19, people who um are going to have a mild course of the disease, and do recall that mild is anywhere from asymptomatic to walking pneumonia. Um, and that's about 80% of people who are infected. Um the mild course of the disease tends to resolve in 10 to 14 days, whereas the uh, moderate to severe course of the disease, which is anything from non-walking pneumonia to requiring a ventilator, um, is uh, four to six weeks. So it's a much more protracted um, recovery time uh, for those who do recover from the severe and critical courses of the disease. And so what seems to be happening is that, say, around that 10-ish day mark, um, people feel like they're getting better. And if there is a false negative test um, for those people, which is a, a you know, there's still false negatives on, on these RT-PCR tests. They require, um, because they're, they're nasal and throat swabs, they require a good sample in order to test positive. Um, so it looks as though, they tested negative when they they were they were still infected right before the sort of second wave of this disease hit, and they turned into a severe case at around the two week mark, um, which seems to be the sort of average course of, of this disease. So at this point, the uh, even though there's still questions about how immune you are after having COVID nineteen, um, the the reinfection cases, because they're literally like within a couple of days, um, at this point, the, 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 uh, most obvious explanation for those is that those negative test results were actually false negatives. Um, and actually the, the research thus far, um, basically shows that there's there's no evidence that people can actually be reinfected with the virus, at least on the time scales that we've already been de- dealing with this pandemic. That doesn't mean that that person will still be immune in three years. but we we don't have any examples of infectious organisms that the immune system mounts an adaptive immune response against that could reinfect on on this kind of time scale, you know in the order of months. And actually, there there has been a study. Um, using the novel coronavirus um, in uh, rhesus macaques um, monkeys, which are uh, the most similar primate to humans, um, that was done in Beijing and showed that they could not be reinfected. Um, so even they were they were um, looking like three months out. So um, so they tried at, at one month and they followed write their experiments. Um so there's also been um some idea that what look like reinfections in a uh testing capacity is actually potentially also mild uh mild cases turning into asymptomatic where um they're asymptomatic carriers. So there was another study again done out of China that um, found 38 out of 262 patients that had been discharged, um, these were discharged from the quarantine centers, um, still tested positive. But they were almost all of those patients were below the age of 14. They all had mild symptoms during their period of active infection when they were in the quarantine center and they were basically not symptomatic at the time of their second positive test. So that falls not under the reinfection category, but under the asymptomatic um, contagious category. Um, So right now the data points to like once you've had it um, and gone through the other side, uh you should be good. Um we don't know if you'll be good for the rest of your life or a few years um but definitely for the next little while should be good.
0: We can logically say if it mutates like the flu, you many people get the flu multiple times in their lives, but Right now but we're not seeing that. But you're getting a slightly different flu every time. Right, exactly. Yeah. But, and right now we're not seeing that mutation is what I heard you say earlier, right? Correct. So we can't obviously predict the future, but you can logically make assumptions based off those facts, I guess. It, unless it were different, then yada, yada, yada. So the last question that we have, and actually, Stacey, this this circles back
1: to the um, healthcare provider's risk is the recommendations for the average population to wear non-medical masks. Um, and the the question that I've been seeing is like, is this really a thing? Does this really make a difference? And um, the answer is yes. So there, um, the fabric masks that um, I know a few days before, a week before it became a recommendation i actually pulled out my sewing machine and sewed my own which is kind of amazing
0: because uh my sewing skills are rudimentary at best it was um, about that time that i was yelling at matt that he wasn't wearing one that was provided for free by the united states postal service by the way uh-huh. <laughs>
1: Ex- excellent <laughs> busted um so uh so what face masks do is they reduce our exposure to an aerosol with a combination of two things so one is the filtering action of the material and the other one is the seal of the mask around the face so the the in order to have an effective uh, homemade mask you want both a material that's going to do a pretty good job of filtration and you want it to fit around your face well so i can say from a a um personal story. I was um, picking up a box of produce that I'd pre-ordered from a, a farmer and there was a short line of people picking it up at the same time at their drop off. And we were all social distancing in the line and we were all wearing face masks. But the person in line in front of me had a mask that was too loose and it kept every time she would talk, it would fall off her face. And so not only was that not providing a very good seal around the face, but every single time it would fall off, she would grab the mask and stick it back on. So she it was actually making her touch her face more so that is the situation that you want to avoid with face masks you want one that is going to fit properly and you still want to social distance you still want to be very careful about what you're touching and you still want to not touch your face while you're out of the house until you've had an opportunity to thoroughly wash your hands um also, when you take the face mask off, you want to think of the face mask as itself contaminated. You want to take it off as carefully as possible, so you're not rubbing parts of the face mask on other parts of your body. Um, you want to put it directly into the washing machine, um, and you want to wash your hands immediately because you need to think of, you know, it has been filtering aerosols, um, which is the whole point of it. But really um, thinking of the mask itself as a contaminated surface is really important. So um, that's one of the reasons why there was so much hesitation to recommend the use of face masks in America. We're not a culture that wears them normally. Like we're not, you know, if you look at Asian cultures, for example, um, face mask use is pretty common and has been forever. Um, and we're not that culture. So a lot of people don't know how to put them on, how to take them off, um, how to not fiddle with them. And that was one of the things that has been a, a concern with recommending them. So I want to emphasize that there is absolutely, um, absolutely benefit to wearing a mask while being out of the house. That is not a substitute for social distancing. And it's really, really important to know, um, to know that it needs to fit well and that you can't touch your face and all of those other things. So there was a really good study done a couple of years ago in homemade masks that looked at, uh, both how well different materials fit as well as how well they filtered. And, um, basically what they found was, um, you know, fit in a lot of ways is going to depend on, how stretchy the material is, um, it's going to depend on, um, how, um, how it, you know, how exactly it's made. So, um, basically you want something that's going to cover your nose and your mouth under your chin. If you're a man with facial hair, facial hair is a problem. Um, so you definitely, you know, it might be, might be time to go down to just a mustache. Um, Um, so that the the mask is actually just touching bare skin Um, and you want it to provide uh, full coverage, right? So all the way to the edges of your face and um, really in an ideal situation, you would have those little, like I was sleeping on a crumpled sheet line on your face by the time you take it off. You don't want it to be pinching, but you want it to be right up against your skin. And, Um, what the study did was then looked at, so it looked at how well different types of homemade masks fit. Um, you can make a well-fitting mask from just about anything. And then they also looked at how good, um, masks were of of different materials were filtering. And so, um, some of the best materials to use was a, a vacuum cleaner bag. Um, that's not something I have lying around. Um, but another, uh, very good very good materials were basically anything a uh, cotton with a tight a tight weave um so quilting cotton would be really good um Cotton t-shirts were okay. Uh, cotton tea towels were very, very good. Um, especially um, everything was better once it was two layers of fabric. Um, so for example, a, a tea towel went from an 83% fil- filtration efficiency to a 96% filtration efficiency once it was, went from one layer to two. So you also want to make sure that um, any fabric face mask is at least two layers of fabric and three would actually be even better. And then what the researchers did was they actually compared um, the number of – they so they put the masks on uh, people coughing um, and then measured how many viruses got through and compared it to a surgical mask. Now, note that a surgical mask is not the proper P- PE that we want our healthcare providers wearing. We want them wearing N95 masks, um, which filter – uh, much more efficiently than surgical masks, but this particular study compared it to a surgical mask. And so, what they they basically uh, showed uh, with no mask, it was uh, about 200 uh, what are called CFUs or colony forming units of viral particles that were expelled through coughing. With the homemade mask, it was down to 43. So that's you know a little bit better than uh, three quarters. Um, filtration. If the surgical mask, it was down to 30. So actually the difference between a homemade mask and a surgical mask was not, um, not that big. Surgical mask was a little bit better. Um, but this is, so this is really important to know that it's, it's not an N95 mask. It's not going to protect everything. still super important. So it's really important for two reasons. One is if you have it and don't know, it's going to contain, um, a large majority of the virus that you're shedding so that you have a reduced risk of infecting people around you. If you have to say, for example, go out to the grocery store or to the pharmacy. But the other reason why this is important is it is going to help you if you are, uh, again, you know, out getting essentials um, and happen to encounter an infectious person. Um, again, this is why Combining this with hand washing and social distancing and, you know, being really cautious about what you're touching and all those things is still really important. But the reason why this helps protect you is because the there is some science now with this virus and other, you know, this is consistent with um, other viruses, um, is that the um, virus exposure, how much you're exposed to... When you are infected, so what is your inoculation dose of this virus, is um, a major contributor to the severity of the illness. So the more viral particles that you are exposed to when you get your infectious dose of COVID 19, the more likely you are to have a more severe course of illness. I'm
0: and so the glad reason that why you I'm didn't mean to interrupt you, but I'm so glad that you answered that because I was literally chomping at the bit to ask, and also feeling like, does this make me an idiot for not knowing the answer? No, Um, it does not. But it's what I would have thought, and then I'm like, you know, can your body fight the infection easier if there's less of it? Is kind of, you know what I mean? So, thank you for it.
1: Basically, so basically, you have to think of it this way: so every virus that enters your body is going to start replicating itself in your cells. Once it's maximally reproduced within a cell, the cell dies and the virus is released, and then all those virus particles go to new cells and they repeat. So if you start with two viruses as opposed to one, you're basically already starting, you're like your exponential growth of virus particles is gonna be higher. And it takes a few days for your immune system to A, detect the viruses there at all, and then B, like mount a, an effective response. So what it means is, by the time your immune system is ramping up, the number of virally infected cells is way higher if you started with more viruses in your body. And so it, you know, it doesn't mean like you're doomed to die if you got a, a high exposure. But this is why we are seeing. Um, pretty severe cases in our healthcare workers. Because if you're working in a COVID-19 ward, um, you're going from patient to patient to patient. And this thing is so infectious that, um, you know, it's really, really hard. Um, You know, we've got like these um, uh, pressurized rooms that you know, the the airflow can't escape from and things like that, but we don't have enough of those to fully contain every single case. So healthcare workers, uh, one of the challenges that they have is that they're getting exposed to so many different viral particles when they do get exposed due to their proximity with so many different COVID-19 patients. That's probably the main reason why um, they're um they're generally getting, you know, so sick and it's, it's such a high, high risk for them. So, uh, again, this is why we need, you know, the, the appropriate levels of PPE, um, for our healthcare workers. And we need them to be able to, you know, change them between patients and all of those things. Um, but this is also why even a homemade, um, face mask can be beneficial because it, Even if it's not filtering 100% of the viruses, even if it's only filtering 75%, that means that if you do get exposed while you're out of the house, um, you just decreased your um, inoculation dose by 75%, um, and that uh, will at least statistically um, increase the likelihood of a more mild course of the disease.
0: I learned so much today. Thank you (laughs) for our listeners for asking these questions and thank you, Sarah, for answering them. Um, If you have enjoyed the show, the best things that you can do are to share it with people in your life that you think would also enjoy the show and leave us a review and rating in whatever platform you enjoy listening. We thank you so much for continuing to follow along on the whole view. Um, it's taking Sarah and I a little bit of time to get used to that, but, um, hopefully you find it fun. I've, we've gotten so many wonderful comments and feedback from people as we, um, shared this news this week. And I genuinely feel like we're all just friends celebrating an anniversary, you know, and something excitement together. So thank you for everything you do as part of this community and um we'll be back again next week thanks for listening thank you for being part of this awesome community we know that we would be besties if only you could chime in
1: super besties the best way to stay in touch with us is to engage on our social media subscribe to our newsletters and share
0: this podcast with others Thank you for sharing. We love your reviews in iTunes, Stitcher, or however you listen. Sweet. So we're going to start... Whole View podcast
1: host. <laughs> Hello, Whole View podcast host. I wonder how long it's going to be before I, like, forget.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so what I, said, what I said to Chris, it was like, I, you know, really... I piss people off every time I open my mouth. It's <laughs> one way or the other. There's always like a... You know I my could...
0: phrase for that, right? I think I've said it before. What you can be it? the juiciest peach in the orchard, but not everyone likes peaches. <gasps> I did not know that phrase, but I like it. Right? It's so Especially because you're in Georgia. And really, honestly, I tell myself that when I see negative things. And it it genuinely soothes me. Like, I, I hear myself say it, and I'm like... It's so true. Like I Mm -hmm. love peaches and some people just cannot eat them or don't like them. And that's okay. I don't have to be for everybody. Like, you know, I'm just like, move on. So there you go. But it's also (laughs) a nice goal to be the juiciest peach in the orchard. Right. For sure. You want to be you wanna still want to be the juiciest peach. I
1: want to be an awesome, super flavorful, sweet, perfectly ripe peach. Let me just see if this was like Bank of America calling me. Uh, let's just see. No, I already told you <laughs> that I'm not having a stranger come into my house. Oh, a no-contact maintenance appointment. What does that mean? How do you check my air conditioning without coming into the house?
0: Well, no-contact is not the same thing as not coming into the house. I'm sure that, like, they have... How do, how do, you, how do you come into my house and not contact things? <laughs>